Welcome to Sex Communication, a project aimed at changing how people talk about sex. It features audio recordings of sex acts, extremely frank conversations, and many confessionals. Please note that our content is explicit and uncensored. And while these episodes may indeed arouse you, the intent is to inform and inspire. Join us now for a judgment and shame-free exploration of sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 77. Today's show features a conversation with Andre Shakti. As she describes herself on her site, IamPolly.net, Andre is a journalist, educator, performer, activist, and professional slut. I had the privilege of meeting Andre in person at the Sex Down South conference this past September, and I'm so grateful that she agreed to do this interview. Our conversation covers both her personal and professional lives. So we discuss her background, upbringing, sexual preferences, relationships, as well as her areas of expertise, her feelings on sesta Fosta, and the struggles of being a sex worker. There's so much ground to cover, so rather than waste any more time on an intro, let's just jump right in. Here we go. Hello again. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is Andre Shakti. I'm 31 years old. I am a white, queer, cisgender, polyamorous female living in Baltimore, Maryland. And in terms of the work that I do, um, I offer a pretty diverse mix um, of both explicit sex work, which for me looks like stripping, uh, professional domination, and occasionally shooting triple X explicit pornographic content. Um, I also do um, sex and relationship coaching uh, with a special focus on alternative relationship structures. So that could mean non-monogamous relationships. That could mean relationships uh, involving kink or BDSM dynamics. It can mean someone's husband came out as a transgender woman 30 years into their marriage. Um, So I do a lot of that work with uh, solo folks, couples, throuples, the whole shebang. And then finally, um, I also do sex education work. Uh, So I teach everything from information about sexual health, like risk assessment, harm reduction, education as it pertains to SCI transmission. Um, I teach about uh, pleasure-based classes, skill-based classes, um, some classes on reconnecting to sexuality and desire after trauma, um, all kinds of fun stuff. And in my ample amounts of free time, I also um, write a sex and relationship advice column um, called I Am Polyamorous and So Can You that uh, also focuses on, quote, alternative relationship structures with a special focus on non-monogamous relationships. So that is my (laughs) full and current resume up to date at this point. (laughs) It's quite a roster of activities. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about like what your introduction to sex was like. Was sex something openly talked about and discussed in your household? You know, was it through school or friends? Like, how did it all start for you? Totally. Um, So I grew up in a relatively conservative area. I grew up in um, southern New Jersey, uh, kind of where all the antique stores and farmlands are. Um, And I went to a very small uh, high school and my parents weren't particularly religious. Um, but my, uh, my mother was Republican. My father, um, was a financial Republican, uh, social (laughs) Democrat. So, um, he ran a, uh, he was a high up exec, um, in the company Conair that makes all the hair dryers and curling irons and stuff like that. And so, um, I actually had 
some really early exposure to, uh, to gay men as a demographic, because a lot of my father's clients were, were gay men that he dealt with who owned hair salons and whatnot. And we used to vacation with them. And, you know, it was never talked about in my household. My, my parents never had a, a sex conversation with my sister and I, they never had a conversation about like LGBTQ people. Um, we were just kind of like left to interpret things around us, uh, to our own devices, so to speak. Yeah. And my high school, middle school was the same way. Um, they weren't particularly oppressive, but we actually had no sexual health education program to speak of. Um, not even like the gym teacher getting saddled with like showing us how to like put condoms on bananas kind of thing, like nothing at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm the last generation, I'm 31, and I feel like I'm the last generation that didn't grow up with computers in our households. Um, my family was fairly well off, and we got a computer when I was like 15, um, like a household computer. So I didn't have access to porn or any of that good stuff, but um, I became sexually active at a really young age, and I've also always been a very like risk aware, um, like prenaturally matured person. Yeah. So, um, before I decided to have sex, I was like asking all my friends who were seniors in high school, like where, you know, like, how do I handle pregnancy? And like, what if like he wants to do this thing and like, can you give me some condoms? And you know, like, what should I be asking him? And, um, also was blessed with a lot of really amazing early sex partners. Um, I really lucked out with, uh, the guys that I dated in high school, um, most of them are still really good friends of mine to this day. And for whatever reason, I just never really had any shame around sexuality. Um, you know, I, I was definitely insecure about parts of my body. I definitely, you know, wanted to change parts of my body as I think like any teenager does. But, um, I never had any shame about being sexually active or like performing certain sex acts or what that meant about me. I never internalized, any like, you know, slut, shamey stigma, whether it was stuff happening in like my micro communities or more like macro community messages that society, you know, was, was sending us, yeah. was sending us. So when you, and, you oh, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just curious when you say that you started having sex at a young age, like what does mm-hmm. that mean to you? What's young for you? Oh, I was, um, I just turned 13 when I started having sex. That's and exactly when I started. <laughs> no shit. There you go. It was like a week after I turned 13 was like, and it felt like I had waited forever, but that's <laughs> no, for real. And like, it's, you know, I, I don't think there is any quote normal or like quote more acceptable age to be having consensual, you know, sexual interactions. But, um, but yeah, it always felt like I, I don't know, like later on in life when I'd be comparing with people, it always, sounded like I started a little earlier. So that's kind of why I frame it like, yeah. <laughs> I can understand. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just never like felt bad about it. And like pretty soon, like between me soliciting like education and information from like my older peers, um, and like literally going to the library and like reading up on human sexuality and, you know, uh, just naturally not having any shame about it. I started like becoming a resource for the people my age in my high school, my middle school around like sex and sexuality. And so like starting in high school, I knew that I wanted to end up in some kind of field. I didn't know what my options were, but I wanted to end up in some kind of field where like I got to like talk to people and coach people and counsel people around sexuality. And, um, 
So that's kind of cool. I've had this, you know, kind of thread running my whole life. And I, I started doing sex work when I was 18. I started working in sex toy stores and putting together my own like uh, sex education curriculums when I was like 20, 21. Um, so I know I'm still young, but I've been doing this. It feels like for forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You, so you said you, you dated some guys, but you described yourself as queer. So does queer for you mm-hmm. mean more of like a pansexuality kind of queerness or do you like in your personal life, are you playing or having relationships more with women or female presenting people or what is it like with men now? Yeah, totally. Um, with men now, (laughs) great question. Uh, Um, so I dated, um, I dated men exclusively, uh, mostly queer men, honestly, um, from the ages of like 13 until about 19. Um, and honestly, I, I'm a hundred percent certain that I would have like discovered and like leaned into my queer identity if I had had any resources around that. Um, I just didn't, you know, I was in theater and I hung out with all the queer kids and I, uh, and by queer kids, I mean the three out gave away that like, <laughs> were in my high school, two of which I like had long-term sexual relationships <laughs> with. Um, and like my, one of them and I started our, the first, uh, gay straight Alliance in my high school. And, you know, I'm skipping around like, wow, I'm such a great ally. And like, wow, this community just feels so much at home for me. And, you know, then I like went to college and, um, I actually minored in LGBTQ studies, uh, at my university. And it was, took me about a year to be like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> I'm queer as fuck. And there were no out women. There were no out trans people when I was growing up, like in my school district or my community. So I just didn't really have exposure to them. You know, it was more like I had exposure to gay men through my dad and like the work that he did and like his social engagements. And then I had exposure to like the few gay boys who come, who were my friends who came out when we were young, but that was kind of it. Mm. Um, especially pre-internet. So yeah, so men were kind of my dating pool. And, um, I think because I've always gravitated towards more like sensitive, like what a lot of people would call like a feminine, like characteristics in masculinity. Um, I think that's one reason why I had really awesome, like respectful, uh, you know, kind like relationships with men, um, in high school. But then, you know, as I leaned into my queerness, like 19 going on, um, from 19 on most of my relationships and my like sexual, endeavors have been with people who are like transgender or non-binary on the trans spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I've also had like occasional, uh, relationships or like flames with people who identify as like cisgender female. Um, but I definitely skew, skew queer now. And a lot of the porn that I've done has been with cisgender men slash people who have to present as cisgender men in the porn industry in order to get booked and sometimes run trans on the DL, um, which is a really complicated way of living in sex work. Um, but I literally have like a roster of like five guys that I will work with. <laughs> and I just kept working with them over and over and over again, because I knew that like they had good politics and they were queer savvy and they were trans savvy and like they were just decent human beings. And, um, you know, I still find myself attracted to men like aesthetically. Um, but I, at this point in my life and for the foreseeable future, I, I can't imagine um, dating a cisgender man with like anything that resembled commitment or like intentionality, really. Yeah. 
So can you explain a little bit more about the high school part when you said you were having sexual relationships with essentially like other queer men? I mean, like, so it seems a little strange, like, wouldn't they be more interested in having sex with men? And like, how did that work with you being female? And like, what, what was totally. the, <laughs> how um, did well, you make that all, work? For a long time, I just thought like, people going down on me was like a thing that like happened in movies and porn and not real life because I was fucking gay men. And they really <laughs> don't like pussy. Um, and so it wasn't until I was like 19 and got like eaten out by a girl that I was like, Oh, it's all the thing about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, my first, uh, my first boyfriend, um, I was 12 and him and I were together in middle school and, um, we, started dating and we dated all of like three months and we were part of a friend group that, um, were, it was a bunch of girls and, uh, everyone was in love with him because he was just like this enigmatic, um, person, attractive person that like gave us the time of day. And then about three months into us dating, he came out as gay Mm -hmm. and he was the first kid in our school district ever to come out, um, as openly gay in middle school. Um, and, so predictably, there was a lot of turmoil. Um, uh, most of my friends, our friends, um, disengaged from him because they were a heartbroken and b um, just didn't really have the context for gayness and had been raised conservative. And so that was that was really unfortunate. And I was heartbroken because my first boyfriend turned out gay. Right. But I knew what being gay was from like my dad's friends and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay, well, like I'm obviously going to be your friend. So then we continued to be friends for about two years and to set me perfectly up for sex work. But, um, he, you know, this is the days of AOL chat rooms. Right. Yeah. Um, and so this is like 2003 or so like 2002, 2003. So this is like AOL chat room time. So this is where gay men were hooking up. They were hooking up on, on AOL. They were hooking up on Craigslist and he would go out and meet up with older men um, that he met online and I would be his safety call. Mm. And so, you know, he'd be like, I'm taking a bus here to like the mall and then we're going to eat dinner and go back to his place. And I'd be like, okay, cool. So like you have your cell phone. I have my cell phone. Thank God we had cell phones at the right. time. I'm like, you're going to text me when you get there. You're going to text me like you're, you're going to give me ahead of time all of the identifying information that you have on him, um, his name, his like, uh, you know, the model make of his car that he's telling you to look out for his AOL handle. Um, you're going to do a check and call when you get there, you're going to do a check and call when you leave him to let me know that you're okay. And as I had multiple other gay male friends come out around that time, like heading into high school, like I was doing this for like three, four or five people. Um, so yeah, again, when I decided to do sex work and I was doing like direct provider services, um, I got really good at like, okay, so like, here's how I keep myself safe. And like, here's how I yeah. do check-in calls. And, you know, here's where I loop into my network and here's how I screen people. And um, so, you know, transferable skills. But um, a few years in, uh, I mean, we hooked up um, unexpectedly. He used to hilariously be allowed to sleep over my parents' houses because um, because he was gay and they didn't see him as a threat. <laughs> and that lended itself very successfully to my continuing sexual relationship <laughs> with him, which spanned probably about seven years. We were looking up off and on and for a long time, cheating on each other's boyfriends with each other um, for a significant period of time. But he was always like attracted to like 
my energy and like who I was as a person. Like I've always been like a very dominant person. I've always been like very tomboy esque as they would call it. Um, and always had like a lot of masculine energy, even as like a very feminine identifying person. And so I think that's one of the reasons why like kind of like fey men like gravitated and still gravitate towards me and like, et cetera, et cetera. So it was never really about like my anatomy, which made it weird, you know, like for my early physical experiences, because I didn't know about strap-ons back then. Like I, <laughs> I was definitely like sticking my fingers up guys' butts, but like I like, didn't know about like the plethora of like, you know, uh, toys and accessories and like um, sex acts that I could like do in like a queer uh, situation like that. So we were having like what looked like pretty straight sex. Um, but again, didn't want much FaceTime with my pussy. Right. <laughs> and it took me a long time actually to like, it's not his fault. And I'm definitely not blaming the gay men that I've had sex with, but it took me a really long time, like into my like early twenties to like, uh, accept like the way that I looked, like the way that my vulva looks, because I have also have larger inner labia and like a larger like clitoral hood. And the reason that I actually didn't start doing porn until I was about 23 and I started out with like non nude stripping is because I thought that like there was something wrong with my pussy and that like people wouldn't want to go down on me. And that's the reason why like all the guys I fucked in high school, like never wanted to go down on me. And like when I watched porn, it was all like very mainstream with like very like the Barbie pussies, um, you know, which are a lot of people's natural anatomy and deserve to be celebrated. But it definitely like sent me a lot of messages about like what I thought I deserved. Um, and like what I could pursue and yeah. who I could pursue. Um, so yeah, it took me a really long time to get over that shit. <laughs> <laughs> and like now I'm in a completely different place, but you know, like it took me a while. So, so how do you navigate the sex work? Like if, do you, do you exercise autonomy as far as like who you accept as a client? Do you have a, a filtering system or is it kind of like if you are putting out a certain service and, you know, anybody who requests that service you're willing to work with? I mean, how do you distinguish between queer and straight with your clients? Is it an issue at all? Yeah. So, okay. So, um, sex workers, I just want to say first and foremost for, you know, like anyone who might be listening who doesn't really have a familiarity with the sex industry. I am by no means speaking on behalf of all sex workers. Like this is how I do things in my life. And this is not to say that like every sex worker thinks of their work like this or like uses the same practices or like any of that stuff. So I just want to like get that out and open. Um, the second thing is that because of like the privileges that I do have, I am afforded the large privilege of not doing what's called survival work. So there's non-consensual sex trafficking, there's survival sex work, and then there's sex work. Survival sex work involves more autonomy and agency, less coercion than something like um, sex trafficking. Right. However, it's definitely being done um, as a last resort because the person involved needs to like put food on the table or you know, um, send their kids to school or put clothes on their back or keep a roof over their head. And for whatever reasons, um, other forms of employment are not available to them. Um, and then sex workers tend to like describe a very, um, specific, like sociocultural minority of people who oftentimes are very empowered in their work and making like 
intentional decisions about their work without any um, pressure or expectation or coercion coming from any like angle. And they also tend to be more like politically organized and like participatory in like the community social element of being a sex worker. So that is the camp. The latter is the camp that I I ideas. So to answer your question. (laughs) Um, So I, um, I live very authentically. I don't really have like, I use two different names. My legal name is Ariana Travellini. It's very closely linked in all ways to my uh, work name. Um, So I have like an authenticity thing about me where like, while some workers might take on a character um, or like a different persona um, to be their sex worker identity. Um, it's kind of me all the time. And so what that means is that like, you know, uh, I put advertisements up on online um, through different advertising agencies uh, that I pay for and um, potential customers will frequent those uh, advertising platforms and look for uh, providers and in those, there are also links to like my social media profiles and my website it has all like my writing and academic stuff on it. So when clients are hitting me up, they're not just hitting up who they see in an ad. Um, they're hitting up like they go to my social media page. They see that I'm queer. Right. They see that I'm very politically engaged. They see that I do like sexual education and that I write and that, um, you know, I travel and that I'm in relationships with other people. Um, they see all that. So when people end up hitting me up, they usually have like, um, a very clear idea of who I am already because of how transparent I am like digitally. Right. And so that ends up like resulting in a lot like more positive, like kind of holistic, um, experiences with clients that I may otherwise have. Um, and because they have more of an idea of who I am authentically, as opposed to like whatever like image I project, that might be difficult for me to like, keep up at certain times, you know? Yeah. Um, and then in my ads, I do list the activities that I'm available for, right? So as a pro dom, um, I, I mean, there's tons of stuff, but like I'm available for like strap on play, I'm available for role play scenarios, I'm available for uh, fetish wrestling, I'm available for impact play. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So then that also narrows it down. If I'm not listing something on my ads that someone's interested in, they're probably not going to hit me up because they're going to assume that I'm not available for it. Right. Um, so then by the time they do hit me up, um, I do some light vetting. So I will, uh, ask for, um, a reference of a recent provider that they've seen, uh, in the recent past, like another dominatrix, for example, or an escort. Um, and then I'll hit that person up and get a reference from them. I'll also ask for uh, one form of identifying information in, I'm sorry, in identifying information. And this could be a screenshot of their state ID or license with their address whited out. This could be, um, a LinkedIn profile or a social media profile, some kind of like internet footprint, This could be, um, I'm a lawyer at this law firm and you're going to call my law firm and pretend to be like a client and get like my secretary to patch you through to me so that you can confirm I'm a real person and I am who I say I am. And then like hang up. Um, I provide like a lot of different options. And if folks aren't willing to provide me with that security information, then I don't see them as clients. And again, that is a privilege that I have, you know, like a lot of workers who are less privileged, they can't afford to turn down clients, you know, um, and be choosy about who they see. So, um, 
so yeah, that's kind of how the, the whole thing happens. <laughs> well, I have two follow-ups for that. I mean, the, we're going to have to talk about Sester Foster because I I'm, know this plays into all of this, but just in terms of, I, I'm sure even with all of these practices in place, you must have like straight cisgendered guys still hitting you up for X, Y, and Z. Oh yeah. Most of the vast majority of my clients are straight cisgender men. And is Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm curious of, and I, this is probably a bigger question we can talk to in, in other areas a little bit after this, but mm-hmm. so identifying as queer personally, like when you're doing work that involves being in any kind of sexual role with somebody that's not of your, like your ideal, I guess, like, is it, is it more work on your part dealing with somebody that's not in that camp versus somebody who is like another queer person or like more physically or energetically your ideal? Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying. Like as a queer person, like, do I like hate men to the point where like, (laughs) well, not hate, but I mean, like there's a certain amount of effort to do anything as work versus doing something as personal. Like you may love gardening, you know, as a hobby, but like once it becomes a job, it changes the dynamic of the act, right? Like the, Mm. the joy is changed. So I'm just kind of trying to gauge like, what is it like for you working with people that are your ideal versus people that are not your ideal is it like it's work it doesn't matter who the person is or I mean does it play into it at all maybe it doesn't I'm curious totally um yeah okay I'm gonna try and nutshell this for you (laughs) (laughs) so for me um I do not offer activities in terms of like what I offer as a, as a program, right? Like stripping and stuff is a little bit different, but like, um, so there are a few different things. Um, the re- one of the reasons I like sex work and I do the kinds of sex work that I do is that I am an ex- exhibitionist, um, in certain ways I'm an exhibitionist. Um, and I think a lot of people can say the same, but I'm an exhibitionist doing things that I'm really good at <laughs> right? um, and, or don't have a lot of vulnerability around. So, um, topping or like dominating people don't have a lot of vulnerability around it. Um, I know I'm really good at it. So I like being an exhibitionist in that way, whether it's through porn, whether it's through domination work, um, whatever it is. Uh, I'm also like a really good dancer. I do a lot of pole. Um, I'm really good on the pole, uh, in terms of like athletically and stuff. And so like, I like being an exhibitionist at the strip club because I like my body. I know that I move well and I know that I, I'm good at what I do. Um, I also like providing a service. I really like facilitating a safe space for people who have a lot of shame um, about what they desire, how they desire it, how frequently they desire it to come into this safe, accessible environment and not only be like tolerated, but be like encouraged and spend time with someone who is enthusiastic about the things that make them think that they're a terrible person. Um, and that is really like, I'm not a spiritual person, but the only word that I can use to describe that is it's really sacred to me. Like I feel honored that people all the time, whether it's like a guy who gets a private room with me at the strip club, who just wants to sit down and like ask me questions about him and his wife's marriage to, um, 
old friends from elementary school and middle school who hit me up on social media after like searching for me, like for months, um, (laughs) just to be like, can you please help me? I don't know who else to turn to. And you've always been this person, um, two people who hit me up for domination sessions. Like I, I love I love being that for people. And so in that way, it doesn't matter what gender you are, what sexual orientation you are. Um, I actually have a lot of empathy for cisgender straight men right now in our culture. <laughs> um, post, you know, post me too. I, I have a lot of empathy for them because um, they kind of woke up one morning and the expectations of them uh, shifted dramatically um, as did the folks who were expecting those things of them, as did those folks' willingness to educate them for free on like how to be better at those, at at those things that they're expecting of them. Right. Right. So like, um, so I like working with men because, um, a lot of times I am one of the only like quote woke people or people engaged in social justice who is femme, who is, you know, a woman, uh, who is LGBTQ, who is willing to be like, yeah, you can ask me the stupid questions. You can ask me like the questions you're afraid to asking to ask me because you're afraid of offending me. Right. You can um, be your full self with me and I will check you if you need to be checked, but I always do it with compassion and I will always do it with education um, following up that check so that you can be better next time. Yeah. And those educational moments happen all the time. They happen in domination sessions. They happen in strip clubs. They happen in social conversations with friends. Um, so yeah, in that way, I don't think a whole lot. I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking like about, you know, um, what toll like this work takes on me in that way. And I think that means that it doesn't. Yeah. It sounds um, like if anything, it, it gives you more than it could possibly take just because like you're, you're really being of service in like, not just a transactional way, but like in a spiritual way, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, I guess in terms of sexually for me, um, I, I mean, I am queer. I have the capacity to be attracted to all bodies and like all gender presentations. And like, I will definitely have clients where like, I will be attracted to those clients. I will also have sessions where I'm not physically attracted to the client at all, but because of like what we're doing, um, or like the energy that they're giving back to me, like I will genuinely enjoy myself. Um, I won't like get off, like have an orgasm or anything in session, but like I will genuinely enjoy myself and like pull energy from that. Yeah. Um, and that's really cool. I think it's helped like being a sex worker has definitely helped me like broaden my perception of who and what I find attractive. Um, which is, which is a bonus in my book. Um, I do need balance though. So like for me in my life, like, because I am attracted to like femininity and masculinity and androgyny, um, if I'm like seeing a lot of masculine clients, you know, for example, like one week, I probably like won't be seeking out like masculine energy in my personal life. Right. Yeah. Um, same thing. If like I've been in a very dominant headspace, um, for a long time, I'll probably be seeking out like more submissive sexual interactions, um, temporarily in my personal life. Um, I'm very concerned with balance. Um, you know, down to like, if I've been strap on fucking a lot of people recently, I probably like won't feel like doing that in my personal life until my work life with that dies down because of the balance component to it. So like, it does impact me, my personal life in that way where like my sexual energy, like my sensual energy, the balance, um, can and often is determined by like 
uh, what kind of work I'm doing and the frequency at which I'm doing that work at any given point in time. Yeah. So oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So can you talk, I, like, I, I do really want this to be about your personal experience, but I mean, you being in sex work, it would be foolish to not touch on SESTA-FOSTA a bit, because I'm sure this legislation has impacted how you work and the difficulties of doing it in a safe way. So can you just talk to me about your experience with it and your thoughts or whatever you'd like to express about it? Oh, yeah. um, I know it's a <laughs> yeah. um, it's the worst. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's what's I've done a ton of advocacy around um, Zesta Fosta, and um, you know, I think what's most present for me at this point in time, honestly, is like rage, mm. but not rage at like our administration, just uh, rage at, at people. Um, sex workers were screaming about SESTA-FOSTA and the potential censorship implications, um, not just for us, but for everyone who has a digital presence and has a sexual life. Uh, And uh, no one cared. No one cared when, um, you know, the bill went through the House and the Senate. No one cared when it was signed into law. Um, People told us that we were being dramatic, um, that it wasn't an act of violence as we knew it, it to be. Um, people told us to give it a chance, uh, that maybe it would help sex trafficking as it was purported to do. Um, and now everyone's getting blocked and banned off Instagram and everyone's getting blocked and banned off Twitter and Facebook and like getting shadow banned and having like their businesses, uh, suffer and their website analytics suffer and, um, getting their, their, uh, merchandise like erotica, um, books and like sexual health books and, um, sex toys, uh, taken off of their websites and off of Amazon. And now people will give a fuck (laughs) about Sesta Fosta, not to mention that we have been losing. I mean, let me back this up for a second. Quick nutshell. Sesta Fosta is a bill that was signed into law, um, in either June or July of 2018, I forget which, but in the early summer of 2018 last year, um, by president Trump. And, um, what it was purported to do was to crack down on non-consensual, often underage sex trafficking. Um, sex trafficking, by the way, is not, um, a major issue in the United States. Um, the much larger, uh, issue is labor trafficking. Um, the trafficking of, uh, foreign laborers, oftentimes Latinx identified folks uh, into the country to work on farms, work in kitchens, et cetera. That is actually a much um, more prominent and dire uh, situation than sex trafficking. However, um, no one really cares about trafficking unless it's sexy. And as evidenced by the popularity of TV shows like Law and Order SVU, which I will also claim to love on the side <laughs> because I'm not, per- I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Um, <laughs> But people, you know, sex trafficking grabs headlines. It's very clickbaity. It's very, um, it, it brings people's moralities into question. It believes it brings their belief systems into question. It, um, yeah, it's just sexy to talk about. And so um, even though it's not actually a large issue in the United States, it's being treated as such. So this unnecessary bill was signed into law. Not only was it unnecessary, but what it essentially did is it removed section 
oh, fuck me, it's either 230 or 233 <laughs> of the Communications Act, which basically stipulated that third-party websites such as Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, MailChimp, um, uh, Instagram, were not responsible, were not, could not be held criminally responsible um, or be prosecuted for the content that their users posted on their site, right? So for example, a kid wants to shoot up his high school, which unfortunately is all too common of an occurrence these days. He posts on Facebook, I'm going to go shoot up the high school, and then he signs off. Parents cannot, after the fact, take Facebook to court, or could not take Facebook to court based on the fact that their son was allowed to post this on the platform, right? Um, however, now they can. Right, right. <laughs> um, when eradicating that section of the Communications Act, it basically made all of these platforms culpable for what their users posted, specifically in sexually oriented ways. Because there again is this misconception that the majority of sex trafficking happens online, when in fact the majority of sex trafficking happens on the streets. And so what it effectively did is it um, threw down an unprecedented um, uh, veil of internet censorship that we have never seen before. Um, it impacts, its reaches are so broad that they, they reach into everyone's lives. Um, you know, there are people getting blocked off Facebook for posting a picture of themselves in a bikini. Um, there are people again, who are, um, doing like, uh, you know, or sexual health, uh, sexual sex therapists, right. Or like relationship counselors who are having their websites flagged as being inappropriate and violating, um, violating the, uh, website, um, oh my God, the host sites, like terms and conditions. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, last summer, a lot of people, most people saw in their email inboxes, lots of updates to third party platforms, terms and conditions. Right. And that was all of these platforms scrambling to, um, to uh, to meet the demands of SESTA FOSTA, the censorship demands of SESTA FOSTA. And so third-party payment processors, people get kicked off PayPal, people get kicked off, um, uh, what's the other platform? Um, like Stripe Venmo. and Venmo. And um, all of them, yeah. Stripe, Squarespace, um, for quote, suspicious activity, um, all around under this umbrella of quote, trying to end sex, sex trafficking. And of course, a bunch of sex worker advertising platforms, places where sex workers went not only to advertise their services, but to um, engage in community forums where sex workers would share blacklists about like dangerous clients, where they would share tips and tricks about screening your clients and like staying secure and safe, um, where they would give each other resources on like, uh, you know, mental and physical health, like um, non-discriminatory, comprehensive uh, mental and physical health services for people involved in the sex trade, all of those went down. And so what happens when we can't advertise online is we go to the streets. And what happens on the streets, but a bunch of people, particularly the most marginalized sex workers, the black, brown, um, trans women, um, and black and brown cisgender women and gay men who are now going off on the streets is they're easy prey for pimps. And what pimp culture is, is sex trafficking. And so what we ended up seeing over the past, Jesus Christ, 16 months or so, 14 months, is um, a substantial rise in the assault and murder 
of black and brown sex workers, particularly transgender women, because we saw a severe influx in street workers once all of these digital avenues for workers to stay safe were ripped away with them and ripped away from them rather. And um, I don't have the actual article to cite. You know what? While I'm actually in front of my computer, let me look it up for you. But um, they did release a, uh, they, they released an article a few months ago um, where the government admitted that um, SESTA-FOSTA had not actually resulted in any increased um, crackdowns, successful crackdowns on sex trafficking, that it largely had been unsuccessful so far. And like, it's just, it's, you know, the first few months that we all had to scramble and figure out how to live with it, it was terrifying. Um, Now, you know, sex workers are above anything else. We're hustlers and we're survivors. And so like you throw anything at us, the sex industry is the oldest trade. It is always <laughs> going to be around. We will always figure out how to work, you know, and clients will always figure out how to hire us. It's just like, we have to keep reinventing the wheel, you know, and like, there isn't really a moment in time where we are afforded the luxury of not constantly reacting to something that threatens us. And that is fucking exhausting. And yeah. Sesta Fosta was just like the last thing um, legislation wise that like did this to us. You know, I'm sure there will be like some new, uh, especially under our current regime, um, there will be some new like kind of terrible bill that comes out that like is trying to eradicate sex workers off the face of the planet. But yeah. yeah, again, people didn't care until their Instagram profiles started going down. And like for that, I really have no empathy. Like <laughs> I have zero fucking empathy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause thank you for letting me go on my, I mean, you did ask me, but thank no, you for letting me and go because, on my Sesta Fosta. Yeah. I mean, if anybody's okay, go. qualified on. to talk about it though, you know, I mean, it's, it's worth hearing from the mouths of the people who are truly affected, like the residual effects of people not in that trade being censored here and there. Like, yeah, that's also unfortunate, but when people's lives are being put at risk unnecessarily and having the opposite effect amplified is what was intended or what was claimed to be intended. It's just, you can imagine how frustrating and, you know, upsetting it is. So I, I really appreciate you providing your perspective and giving a, an overview of it because I'm sure a lot of people have heard Sesta Fosta thrown around, but may not know mm-hmm. exactly, you know, how it all started and why it even ties to internet censorship, which initially I, you know, for a while in the beginning, I didn't realize there was a connection between the two. So it's important to, to get that information out there. So thank you. But it sounds like you, you found the article you were looking for. I did. It's um, a Business Insider article um, that they uh, they joined forces with the Washington Post, and um, it's an article by uh, Carol K A R O L Markowitz M A R K O W I C Z um, from July fourteenth of this year, um, and it's called "Congress's Awful Anti-Sex Trafficking Law Has Only Put Sex Workers in Danger and Wasted Taxpayer Money." And the difference is there are lots of opinion pieces out there by people in the sex industry um, about how terrible SESTA-FOSTA is and why it should never have been signed into law. But this one actually um, fact checks uh, the claims that the administration makes about um, SESTA-FOSTA being successful and um, statistically proves that it hasn't been. And so that 
provides a little more concrete information for folks to like sink their teeth into. I will definitely link to that in the show notes, along with all the other links to all the different work that you do. I'm going to bring it back a little bit more personally now. What is your family's reaction to what you do? Do you have the support of your family? Has it created any problems or is it... Do you, are you very lucky that you have the support and acceptance of your loved ones? Um, oh, man. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the short story is that my family is, is not um, accepting. Uh, I, as someone who's always, like, prioritized authenticity and really just had no interest in hiding any part of my life because I'm not ashamed of it, um, I've been out about everything since I realized it. So, like, I came out as queer um, at 20 or like nine, between 19 and 20. And I came out to my parents immediately. And, um, I came out as non-monogamist when I was like 20, 21, told my parents immediately, uh, told them when I started doing sex work. Um, and it was never in a way that sought their approval because I, even though I didn't come from like an abusive household or anything, I just never, um, I was just never close with my family. Um, I, Grew up in a single parent household. Um, affection wasn't really a thing that was like doled out in our house. And um, I spent a lot of time like by myself. And I just never, you know, like the quintessential, like, they don't understand me um, kind of teenage thing. But also just like knowing deep down since I was a kid that like, that they would never celebrate like who I was as a person, even before I could put like, um, language behind that. I could like properly articulate that like into my teens and twenties. Yeah. Um, and again, they're not particularly religious. Um, I'm sure they still vote Republican. I don't know, but, uh, I mean, my father, my parents divorced when I was really young and my mother basically raised my sister and I, and my father actually had, um, an AVM. It's like a brain aneurysm. Uh, uh, in his head, he had a bleed out when I was a sophomore in college. And, um, kind of hilariously, uh, my dad was a dick before this <laughs> happened. And a lot of times with like neurological, uh, incidents, um, you experience the person that's afflicted. If they survive it, they experience severe, like, uh, character and personality differences, right? Yeah. Like behavioral differences. Right. And so a lot of times people say like, oh, like my dad wasn't like racist before, but now he's a racist or like, oh, like he didn't have a short temper, but now he has a short temper. My dad turned into a, like a, a meek little lamb. Hmm. Like my father like went from like a roaring, like aggressive terror to like the sweetest man. <laughs> and so like, if you had told me in like my teens that like when I, you know, was 31, my closest relationship would be with my dad, I would have like laughed <laughs> in your face. But, um, you know, my dad is still very much in my life. Um, I'm responsible for a lot of his care as is my sister. So, um, so we like take care of him. He's in just a living facility in New Jersey. And then the rest of my family, my mother and her entire side of the family, um, really either actively hates me or, um, just is like incredibly like disappointed in the person that I ended up being. And that, you know, I, I like to pretend sometimes that it's not hard, especially the older I get. It's like, I've always known this. I've had to deal with it for years. Um, I tried to make them come around for years. You know, I, I'm an educator like at heart. So I was always encouraging them to ask me questions and I was bringing like other community members around them. Um, and like, you know, like introducing them to like diverse groups of people and like trying to like 
um, you know, like be like, Hey, like, I know I've been using this language a lot. Do you like know what that means? And trying to like create like respectful, like, uh, dialogues around things that like were stressing them out, um, or concerning them. And they just never cared. (laughs) So, um, three years ago, I actually cut off complete contact, um, with my family. Uh, so at this point, the only people that are really in my life are my father and then my younger sister, because we have to like manage his care together. But, um, honestly, uh, I should have done it a long time before that. (laughs) Like it was the best decision I ever made. Um, it just removed so much weight um, and like a sense of obligation and, mm. um, from my shoulders. And, uh, you know, since then I've helped like a lot of people, um, you know, whether as a favor or professionally, um, remove themselves and separate themselves from like toxic family environments. Um, and, you know, take care of themselves in that way. Um, but yeah. Uh, so I kind of like live vicariously through my partners. Um, to families. Yeah. I've been very fortunate the past six or seven years, uh, with folks that I've dated and granted this definitely, it definitely helps that I was on the West coast at the time, you know, social <laughs> attitudes are, are a little easier, uh, to deal with out there than they are on the East coast. Um, but, uh, who had really wonderful families, really supportive, loving families that like really embraced me, like my identities, the work that I did, um, you know, and I, since then those relationships have ended and it's hard cause I, you know, I went through, I actually went through like three major breakups last year. I had a hell of a year and I was breaking up with not only my partners, but their families. Um, so, um, you know, once in a while, like when I really sit down and like think about it, if I'm not dating somebody like with a really supportive family, um, I'll like kind of, I'll crave it, you know, I'll crave like having like a home base. I'll crave like having like a family, like a capital F family, but you know, largely like I'm better off without it. (laughs) No, I can relate 100% as you were describing to the circumstances of like your parents divorcing when you were young and, you know, being raised by your mother and the the whole thing and your father now being like this meek person, but having the stronger relationship with him versus, you know, with your mother and mother's side of the family, like, my situation echoes that very much. Um, but does the, the friction with your mother and your mother's side of the family, is it the result of kind of the wholeness of your, your identity and person and, you know, the, your sexual identity and the work that you do, or is like one thing more offensive to them than the other? Is there either even a point of distinguishing like what's upsetting to them? Yeah. Um, I don't know. My mom didn't start the whole, like, where did I go wrong? Like Mm. thing until the porn happened. So I'm sure like the porn was a thing. I mean, my, my mom like thought my, my whole family thought like everything, every time I've come out as being passionate about something or identifying with something, you know, whether it was like in my childhood or through my teen years, whatever, my parents always, and to this day I have shame triggers around feeling like, my autonomy or my personal agency are being called in question or attacked. Like if I feel like somebody is saying that they know better than I do about what I'm saying about myself, right? Like not like I could be wrong because I'm wrong all the time, but like if I'm stating like an opinion or a belief system of mine or like an experience that I had um, to get told to challenged on that, um, 
it, it sends me into this like shame spiral and it's definitely permeated my romantic relationships in a not positive way. But, um, but yeah, I was just never validated when I was younger, whenever I would say that I was really into something or that I want, I was really good at something or I wanted to like really commit to something. Like my family always told me that it was a phase. They always told me, this is a phase. You don't know what you mean. You don't know what you're talking about. You're too young. You haven't had this experience. You haven't had this exposure. Like just wait a few years, just wait a few years. And you know, I like, I like, I wanted, I wanted a horse when I was a kid. I was like six, seven years old. And I'm like, I want a fucking horse. Like, and <laughs> my parents were wealthy and we're like, we're not going to pay for lessons for you. And we're not going to like get you near that because it's a phase. All girls go through this. And I ended up like making, um, like a side career out of like training and breaking, um, and then horses and then like running for a while, uh, running like a riding camp for, uh, kids with, um, were neuro, neurodivergent and or like had uh, chronic pain issues and like you know same thing when I came out as queer oh this is a phase you know you're just responding to such and such experience you had with such and such boy that we think we know about <laughs> um you know you'll get over it same thing with the stripping my mother like hated it but thought that for a while she'll tolerate it because um because there are quote worse things I could be doing right <laughs> like at least I'm not like fucking for money um and uh, and that I'll grow out of it you know I'll grow out of it it's a phase um and then I just I don't really go through many phases in my life I really am someone who is very very similar if not identical to the person that I was when I was really young so um so yeah I mean um I mean that was just kind of always how my life has been you know and then at some point my family gave up like at some point they, they acknowledge, they, they acknowledged to themselves that it wasn't a phase and that it was actually who I was. And then they lost that hope that they had about me, like turning around or like, I don't know, coming through with like the heteronormative nuclear family unit or like whatever bullshit. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I guess they're definitely, it was less of like a thing happened or I started doing a particular line of work and more like at one point, probably when I was like 26 or so, um, they just lost like the hope that I would ever become the thing they wanted me to become. And then the following year is when I cut off communication with them. So yeah. it just kind of happened organically like that. Well, congratulations for setting those boundaries for yourself and putting your own well-being ahead of, you know, other people's toxic ideas and energy and responses to things is that's, it's not easy. I know. And I'm sure, and it sounds like you mentioned the struggles that you've had with it and how it kind of bleeds into other personal relationships you have, but on a more positive note, what do you <laughs> <laughs> like to share with me? Like what personally, like what really gets you off? What do you really enjoy doing sexually? What's, the favorite things. Oh, that is a complete 180. <laughs> okay, let's let's do it. Um whew, all right. What gets me off sexually? Um uh okay, well I'll give you like the intellectual answer and I'll give you like the physiological answer. <laughs> okay. Right? Yes. So the kinds of like people I'm attracted to and like dynamics that I'm attracted to, like in bed. Like I'm very much um I like, and this is why I typically gravitate towards like trans or gender nonconforming or more androgynous identify people is I really like, I, there are elements of masculinity and femininity that I, that I crave. And 
Um, it's hard to find those two energies in a cisgender person. Um, it's hard to find a cisgender person that can hold masculinity really comfortably um, and like joyfully and also hold femininity in their body really comfortably and joyfully, whether they like, you know, whether they only play with the dichotomy in the bedroom and like identify as one or the other outside of it, or whether like they move in between those two things um, on the regular. Um, it's just an energy that I'm really attracted to. Um, I really like playing with gender in the bedroom. I really like playing with gender outside of the bedroom. Um, and so that's a thing. Um, I also definitely get turned on to people who are really good communicators. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, a, I'm a very proficient communicator and, um, I'm also of the staunch belief that the more that you talk about sex, the better the sex that you will have will be. And so, um, you know, the better the communication is both in and outside the bedroom, like the hotter being in the bedroom is for me. Um, and yeah, I identify, uh, as a top heavy switch, which means that I enjoy both like personally dominant and submissive dynamics in the bedroom. Um, and that could just be like sexually and it could also be like related to Kinko BDSM. Um, but I am definitely a dominant leading person. So like usually my first inclination when I meet someone I'm attracted to is because I feel like in a dominant way about them. Like I want to like, when I'm like looking at them and I'm like, kind of like getting turned on, like fantasizing about them. I'm thinking about like activities that would involve me like topping them usually. (laughs) Um, but I also want to be with a partner who can also hang with like, you know, getting me off in a way that like, isn't like, you know, begrudging to them, (laughs) you know? So, um, skill set wise, I mean, I really love fisting. I'm a big (laughs) fisting person. I literally have a fisting tattoo, um, tattooed on my forearm, up to my wrist, on my right arm. Um, discovered it with a girlfriend when I was 19, never looked back. Um, I really love strap on play, uh, in the bedroom, like both like giving and receiving. Um, and, uh, I really like impacts. Um, I really like beating people up <laughs> particularly like with my hands. Um, like I'm very proficient with all of the traditional dominant, uh, accessories like single tails and floggers and paddles and all that stuff. But like, I really like just like body to body contact. So whether that's like wrestling or like roughhousing or like tossing each other around or like punching or grabbing or squeezing or slapping like that kind of stuff really gets me going. Um, especially as like foreplay mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm really into breath play. Mm-hmm. I'm really, um, heavily into breath play. I also started like experimenting with that, with that same girlfriend when I was 19, um, consensually and, um, specifically I'm really into choking. Um, and I, that's also something that I enjoy from the top and the bottom. Um, but I am very, very selective about who I allow to do that to me. Um, because there is, I, I teach breath play and erotic asphyxiation classes. And, um, speaking of like harm reduction and risk assessment, there's a lot of that that needs to go into, um, to playing with that kind of stuff. And, uh, there's definitely a lot of like knowledge and skill and technique and trust that goes into it. So that is something that I do a little less often, um, with partners, but, um, yeah, those are all like my, my favorite things. (laughs) So given the breadth of your experience, like, is there anything on the horizon left that you haven't tried or that you think about or? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, I have to like think about that for a second. Um, I'm like, I kind of just do everything I want. Uh, but I'm really thinking, I'm really, really thinking for you. Um, I want to be able to like have a partner who I can like fist their ass. <laughs> I'm surprised like, I that you that. haven't had that yet though. That I, seems- I know. Look, here's the other thing. I have huge hands. Like we're not, we can't see each other right now. I have massive hands. I love fisting, but I'm very rarely someone's like first fist. Um, so like, uh, I like put my hand in like a lot of clients, butts. um, I've fisted butts in porn, um, with people who are, you know, porn performers are sexual superheroes and like sexual athletes. Right. And so their bodies can oftentimes do amazing things like that. But, um, yeah, I just really love fisting and I really love butts. And so like, <laughs> maybe that'll happen for me one day. Um, yeah, aside from that, um, I play with consensual non-consent, um, otherwise known as like rape play, uh, in some of my relationships. And I'm always like kind of looking for like safe ways to take that a little bit farther. Mm. And so that's always like a line that I'm always like walking and like slowly like towing over the edge of with people. Um, it's just hard. It's a lot of the things that I'm really into are they require, not just a lot of skill, but a lot of trust. Um, and if I'm going to be on the receiving end of that, it's like, you know, I'm non-monogamous. I, I want long-term stable relationships, but more often than not, I have like lots of relationships. And so it's like, it takes a long time for people to work up to being able to, for example, like engage in like rape play with me. And then oftentimes like we break up, like, you know, like, like some months or like a year or two years or three years later. And then I would teach a whole other person like (laughs) about that and like develop like that trust all over again with a new person. And so sometimes like, it just gets like exhausting and I never really get to like the advanced levels of that, if it makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand. I'm also like never really actually like articulated that out loud. So thank you for like allowing me to work through that in my brain right then. <laughs> it sounded very, you know, almost like you already had it and it didn't sound like you were really struggling to come up with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just, I, words are, words are pretty, are pretty good for me. Yeah. I like using them. Is there anything mm-hmm. else that you wanted to just mention before we wrap up? Follow me on uh, Facebook. Um, I have a Facebook personal page and a uh, professional page under the name Andre Shakti. It's A-N-D-R-E-S-H-A-K-T-I. If you are local to the uh, Baltimore, D.C. or Philadelphia areas, um, I teach uh, monthly classes in those areas. Um, And I have a few classes coming up um, in Philadelphia and Baltimore over the next few months. uh, And you can visit um, iampoly.net, which is not only the homepage of my non-monogamy advice column, I am Polly Emerson, so can you, but it also has information um, on upcoming events, where you can find me, um, how you can hire me for uh, things like private parties, um, conferences, uh, how you can hire me to come into your college or university, which obviously I love doing, um, and how you can also follow up with me if you're interested in uh, a private uh, one-on-one or um, couples coaching or counseling or consultation around a variety of sexuality-related topics. And if you are interested in my like triple X fun stuff, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Andre Shakti, where I also post a lot of like 
you know, the vanilla stuff, like where to find me and my upcoming conferences. But I also like post a lot of like fun naked shit. So <laughs> um, you can like all the stuff that I can't post on Facebook. So right. you can follow me there too. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Andre. This was fantastic talking to you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful. It was great talking to you too. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, take care. So there you go. The amazing Andre Shakti. I've included all of the links that Andre mentioned in the episode show notes, in addition to a link to the article on Sesta Fosta that she recommended, and even another article that she authored herself on the same topic. In the show notes, you'll also find a link to our ongoing GoFundMe campaign to cover the recent expenses for our podcast equipment upgrade. So if you're a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us. There's no donation too small. And other than that, we'll be back on Monday with another quickie episode. I wish you well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Did you dig it? Tell a friend. Subscribe. Leave a review on iTunes. Send an email. I really would love for you to do all of these things. And if you'd like to know more about this project, visit graphicpaint.com sexpodcast for additional episodes and background on how this all began. And if you'd like to be a part of this podcast, send an email to sex at graphicpaint.com. Every story and experience is valuable, so why not do an interview or submit your own filthy audio? Be a part of our revolution and help us spread the message of sexy self-acceptance.